Good afternoon and welcome to Mag- Midday Magazine for Monday, May 22nd. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. The state of Alaska has filed criminal misdemeanor charges against a vessel operator caught illegally trawling near the south end of Kodiak Island, according to a press release filed by the U.S. Coast Guard. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Office of Law Enforcement tipped the Coast Guard and the Alaska Wildlife Troopers that a ship was using bottom trawl gear in the Barnabas closure area where bottom trawl gear is restricted. The Coast Guard responded by sending the USS Naushan. The crew boarded the 88-foot fishing vessel on its way to Kodiak and found bottom trawling gear on board. The Coast Guard press release did not name the vessel. According to the press release, the incident occurred in mid-April. Federal and state authorities launched an investigation before the state filed criminal misdemeanor charges on May 12th. The Alaska legislature struck a deal in the evening of the first day of the special session last week to fund the government, a significant boost to school funding, and pay a 1300 permanent fund dividend. The deal came after failure on the last day of the regular session when the House adjourned before even voting on the Senate's budget. Senate leaders say they negotiated with House members late Wednesday night and throughout the day Thursday. The deal ultimately contained extra money for several local projects for members of the House. Senate President Gary Stevens, a Kodiak Republican, said finally getting a list of capital budget requests from the House majority helped seal the deal. We worked off of their list, and that's the majority uh, projects that were within that budget. The budget has money for a new roof for the Palmer Library, $2 million for fixing the Mary Avenue storm drainage system in Anchorage, and harbor float replacements in Dillingham, among many other items. With energy in the final weeks of weeks focused on the budget, the legislature adjourned without passing several high-profile bills, including one to reform involuntary commitment laws for mentally incapacitated people and a program to pump greenhouse gases back into the ground. Stevens said the body learned some lessons so that it can be more productive in future sessions. The lesson is uh, follow the schedule. You know, we all know there's a schedule. We all know there's a time at which you cannot go to a conference committee. We just all have to pay attention to that, and uh, we will. I mean, that's my intention next year. Throughout the last weeks of the session, the House and Senate were divided over the size of the dividend, with the House favoring a figure more than double the 1300 ultimately passed. But House leaders couldn't muster the votes to dip into savings to pay for it. The final budget included a provision to pay an additional $500 if oil prices are above predictions. Delana Johnson, a Republican from Palmer, said that was important. Would we have liked it to be higher? Well, absolutely, that too. But, you know, sometimes you only get to meet in the middle. The bill passed the Senate 15 to 1 and the House 26 to 14. It now goes to the governor, who can still veto the bill. Governor Mike Dunleavy is currently on a charity bear hunting trip, and his office hasn't publicly commented on the budget. Two indigenous stories came to life at Ketchikan's charter school. Charter school. 
Students turned killer whale eyes and how Devil's Club came to be into short plays featuring handmade props and form line art the students learned from a visiting artist. In Ketchikan, Reagan Miller has more. Paddling a cardboard canoe, the student actors are exploring the ocean. They're looking for their classmate, the one who turned into a killer whale. Pods of hand-painted cardboard orcas bob and weave in an ocean of royal blue cloth shaken by the students. In another play, a student fights a monster who is stealing their tribe shaman. The heroine visits the Thunderbird people and defeats the giant. I've taken them all hostage and I'm prepared to feed them. How dare you! The stories are part of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute's Baby Raven Reads program. Holly Knoyer is an art teacher at Charter School. Her class designed the props and drama students wrote the scripts. She applauds the students' work. Look at, I mean, look at their form line. Student Amelia Leffler helped make a lot of the props. Leffler says her favorite of the two plays is how Devil's Club came to be. That story follows Raven's niece as she battles a giant who had been taking the village shaman. She discovers Devil's Club and its medicinal properties along the way. And it's sort of fun to see how different cultures are. Riley Presnell also helped bring the scenes to life. I think I really like painting. I really like uh, painting the, the canoe. I really like painting the blanket. Kai Clevenger, a Clinkett student, is the daughter of Kevin Clevenger, the school's artist-in-residence. She helped create the form line that appears on the props. The seventh grader says it's important to her to see her culture taught and celebrated in school. I like how my culture is communicating with other like stuff now and like how my culture is like out there now. Student Ryan Bowling also worked backstage. He says the fact that they're traditional stories is what makes it special. I feel like the like native stories need to get out there more than they are. Bringing the stories to the stage was a community effort, Knoyer says, with help from Ketchikan's tribe staff. Fourth and fifth graders were able to pitch in, too. Knoyer says the school's artists-in-residence had taught the younger kids about formline design, which came in handy. And when we ran out of time to work on our props, fifth grade and fourth grade did our designs on the paddles, they worked on the button blankets, they worked on the designs for all of the hats, and it was all on account of working with Kevin Clevenger that they knew how to do this. They were really excited to participate. That was one of the most satisfying parts of the production process, Knoyer says. It was really cool to see that just that ripple effect of a really great program came into play in our little theater project. The students performed their plays for classmates and community members, including the staff of Ketchikan's local theater. They received a rowdy chorus of applause. In Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. When two major tribal organizations pulled out of the Alaska Federation of Natives last week, many wondered how AFN's board would respond at its quarterly meeting this week. But as Rhonda McBride reports, the state's largest native organization is saying very little and is asking its early leaders to do the talking. After AFN held its quarterly board meeting, it announced it was looking ahead to this year's convention and only made brief mention of the departures. Instead, it asked a few of its founders to reflect 
on AFN's history. Emil Nadi, the first president of AFN, said he was glad to speak, especially to address today's leaders. They're living the dream that their grandparents sacrificed for. Sacrifices, Nadi said, that came at a great personal cost for AFN's early leaders, who went mostly unpaid for their efforts. Some even mortgaged their homes, and they weren't alone. Native families across the state gave what few dollars they had to help AFN win one of the largest land claim settlements in U.S. history. Nadi says today's leaders have good educations and high-paying jobs, things they take for granted. AFN is a gift to them from their ancestors. The sudden exit of the two tribal groups brings the total number of organizations that have left AFN to five, including three influential native corporations. But Clinkett and Haida's departure from AFN in particular has been a sore point for early leaders like Emil Nadi, who cast the deciding vote to allow Southeast Alaska natives to join AFN. Other regions opposed the move because Lincoln and Haida had already received a settlement for land claims. But Nadi says that amount was far too small and unfair because it didn't include land. He also felt the inclusion of Southeast natives would make AFN a stronger organization. Rosita Whirl, who also spoke to the AFN board, agrees. It was that unity of Alaska Native people coming together. What would have happened if AFN moved ahead without the largest region? Oral is head of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, a nonprofit founded by Sea Alaska, the regional corporation for Southeast Alaska. She says Lincoln and Haida's departure from AFN affects both Sea Alaska shareholders and tribal members who should have been included in a wider conversation. None of us had any inkling of it. Both tribal groups have said their needs have changed and believe they can be more effective advocating for their own interests. But World says she and other Native leaders are left wondering if this move was meant to undermine AFN's longtime president, Julie Kitka. World hopes this isn't true because she says Kitka has been highly effective. She pointed to AFN's Alaska Day Summit in Washington, D.C. this March, which gave a large group of Alaska Native leaders a chance to sit down in the same room with six White House cabinet members and four generals. We have someone at the leadership helm who can pick up a phone and call the White House and can command that kind of presence of national leaders. Included in that Alaska Day Summit was Lincoln and Haida's president, Richard Peterson, who says he hopes to continue to work with AFN despite the change in membership status. I, I get that it's a big deal, but it's really not a big deal. To me, this wasn't an anti-AFN move. This was a pro Clinkett and Haida move. Peterson says if AFN needs Clinkett and Haida's support on issues they agree upon, it will be there to help. Don't be surprised to see me walk in the halls at AFN, and I just won't be voting. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. We are entering the other moose season. Calves are being born, and as Alain de Prémeny reports from Haines, they should be left alone. Mother's Day, it's not just for humans. Moose cows are giving birth around this time and experts say we should watch out. 
Carl Koch is a wildlife biologist with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and he warns that the animals can be particularly touchy when they have newly born calves. When they first give birth, the calf has to build muscles until it can grow strong enough to run away from danger. Their most common thing they'll do is bed down, you know, when they're in trouble. Mom knows they can't run away, and so she'll get very defensive. Kosh says the cow's most common defense is to stomp over whatever is threatening their calf. A moose can kick in any direction with its front hooves. Kosh says that cows frequently leave their calves alone for a day, knowing they will not be able to go far. Sometimes people will find a calf in this situation and assume it is orphaned. Interfering in that can just, you know, make matters worse. Kosh remembers one occasion a few years ago in Haines when people crowded around a calf. He says this probably prevented the mother from reuniting with her newborn. They may just abandon the calf. They often have twins, and so they might just cut their losses if one is in a spot where they're having trouble getting back to it because people aren't leaving it alone. When folks call and say there's a calf in the backyard and they're worried about it, I say leave it alone. And if they have pets, I say please keep the dogs out of the backyard. Some folks want to keep going and checking on it every hour, but we prefer they just really just leave them alone. He says almost every time, within a day and a half, they will have moved on. Kosh says of all the moose charges he hears about, around half occur at this time of year. He got a report of one person with a loose dog being charged by a cow this Tuesday in Gustavus. Cows will generally give birth to their first calf two or three years after their own birth. They will get pregnant in September during the breeding and hunting season and give birth mid-May. That makes their pregnancy about the same length as a human's, but they do it almost every year. In an area with plentiful food like the Chilkat Valley near Haines, Kosh estimates that up to 90% of females of breeding age will give birth in any one year. With the valley's moose population around 350 individuals, Kosh guesses about 100 calves could be born this spring. The calves will weigh the same as a mid-sized dog. They will get milk from their mother, but can also eat leafy plants, like willow and dogwood, just after birth. As they age, they progressively shift to an all-plant diet. Kosh says around one in three calves will survive the summer. Adult females can reach over 1,000 pounds and live up to 17 years in the wild. For anyone running into one of the irritable new mothers, Kosh has one piece of advice. If a moose is charging you, do the opposite of what you do with a bear. Run and get behind something big. Kosh likes to keep tabs on those encounters. He says every year in Alaska, some people are injured by moose. He asks that any dangerous interaction with a moose be reported to the state's Department of Fish and Game or the Alaska Wildlife Trooper. Kosh wants to remind the public to leave all wild animals alone. For KHNS in Haines, I'm Alan DePrunil. Thank you for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert and I report for KFSK.